Welcome to the third of these natural capital lectures. In the first two lectures, I looked at the concept of natural capital, a uh, hard concept, very precise in its meaning, and set out the framework around that concept. In the second lecture, I looked at the metrics, uh, how we measure uh, natural capital, how we measure progress, and what the alternatives are around the asset value and the outputs. In the next two lectures, this one and the next, I'm going to look at some of the techniques uh, around um, uh, natural capital. And in this lecture, I'm going to look at the, the standard economics you know, 101 techniques of cost-benefit analysis and set out some of their uh, characteristics and stress some of the weaknesses as well as the strengths of the techniques. And I'll go through what those techniques are. And then in the fourth lecture, I'm going to look at accounting and the accounting principles for natural capital. And broadly, these divide up between uh, cost-benefit analysis being focused on utility, and therefore ultimately having a utilitarian basis, and accounting being based on assets and capabilities uh, and an asset-based approach. So that's the frame. And then later on in the series, we'll look at some of the principles like uh, public goods and uh, polluter pays and net environmental gain that go into uh, a coherent uh, natural capital approach. So cost-benefit analysis. In itself, it sounds extremely reasonable. Who wouldn't want to take into account the costs and the benefits and trade them off against each other? However, what looks like being a simple co concept is in fact a deceptively simple one. So what cost-benefit analysis does is look at the actual prices in markets, correct those prices, put prices in where there aren't markets and currently prices, and then add all the stuff together to produce uh, net present values and therefore the valuation of alternative uh, projects that we might invest in in the environmental area. So it's worth just unpicking those characteristics. So you might think in any normal market, you just look at the, the costs of making something and you look at the, the price and the benefits that come from that and out comes the answer, is it a good thing to do or is it not? But if you look at most environmental areas, there are substantive externalities and indeed public goods and public bads in uh, many of the projects and, uh, 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 and developments that people have in mind. And this is because the prices you actually see don't include the impacts on other people and indeed on other assets, which are an accidental or byproduct of what you're doing. What do I mean by this? Well, if you take the price of fertilizer, if you were to look at a cost-benefit analysis of some farming and one of the inputs is fertilizer, if you took the current price of fertilizer, it doesn't include any of those externality damages to the water systems, uh, to the uh, biodiversity, uh, indeed also to the air pollution, the carbon involved in making the fertilizer, the ammonia and so on. So the proper prices are not the ones that you see out there uh, every day in the market and you can just go and look at. They are the prices of those things in the market adjusted for these external effects. And that's the first big task. The second task, 
which uh, makes the first one look easy in comparison is to put prices on things that don't currently have markets and market prices in them. What price should you have for a view? What price should we place on uh, preserving polar bears or uh, close to home spotted flycatchers? What's the value of a swallow? And this is where uh, economists get into serious trouble and it's where those people who um, worry about the economic approach have a lot of justifiable ground uh, to work from. Now the reality is that what's going on in cost-benefit analysis is trying to measure the utility of different options. But where the mistake gets made is to think that because you're interested in the value of say a great view um, or let's say our spotted flycatchers that therefore you can put a price on them. What's really going on cost-benefit analysis is asking a rather different question and most economists are not sufficiently modest to admit that it's a different question. The question that they're really asking is how much money should we spend on the different alternative options in front of us? So we could for instance make uh, the flycatchers much more successful. It would involve a very substantial change in agricultural practice. It will require a lot of effort to be made along the migration routes and uh, it would uh, require um, a lot of things to happen in farm buildings and elsewhere that don't currently happen. Should we spend the money on it? Or should we spend the money on getting beavers back? Or should we spend the money not building roads through uh, beautiful views because the view is more important and we're best to spend the money preserving the view than we are to preserving the flycatcher or, or the uh, beaver or whatever. And the reality is there are always choices to make. There isn't an infinite amount of money available to protect and enhance the environment. What we've got to do is try to get the best value for money out of what we do have available to spend. And of course that does mean making polluters pay. It does mean compensating for damage. These are things I'm going to come on to later. But cost-benefit analysis where it's about how to spend money and how to allocate it is a reasonable thing to do. Cost-benefit analysis trying to say the price of a view is X or the price of a flycatcher is Y is beyond reasonable bounds. Value is not the same thing as price and value is ultimately uh, what people care about in the environment. Now, when we've done the correction of existing prices and we've done the attempt to at least work out the value for costing purposes of the things that don't have markets, we've still got to turn it into whether the resulting project, uh, creating a nature reserve, extending a natural, uh, national park, uh, investing in, in uh, set-aside and wildflower margins, whether these investments are actually of positive value in total. And the problem with this is that, of course, these benefits accrue at different times in the future, and so do the costs. So we have to ask the question, how do we treat benefits and costs in the future, the next generation, against those to ourselves? And what cost-benefit analysis does is discount the future back to the present. And that discount rate, which I'll come on to a bit later, is highly uh, contentious and makes a great deal of difference to how we spend the money. So, Cost-benefit analysis has its role. It is very much about utility. And there's one other thing that we have to add. It's also about marginal changes to the environment. 
So what cost-benefit analysis does is say, take everything else as given, and we'll just look at one particular proposal, a nature reserve, a national park, spending on a particular species, treating everything else as if it's given. And the problem with that marginal approach in the environmental area is that the environment tends to come in systems and not in neat, discrete bits. And cost-benefit analysis begins to break down as we go to larger and larger scale systems. So asking a cost-benefit analyst to have a look at the whole river catchment is an altogether different and more challenging task than asking whether to take out the weir on a particular stretch of river to improve the flow. Well, that's the frame in which cost-benefit analysis is, is typically set up, and that's some of the limitations. Now, what about the techniques? So economists have spent a lot of time refining the techniques to try to do these valuations or estimations or costings, depending on how uh, modest or immodest of the analyst is. And there are basically three ways we can go about this. The first one is to ask people. So what do you think something's worth? And we do this all the time in market research. If someone launches a new chocolate bar, they go and ask people, would you be willing to pay for this? How much would you be willing to pay? How much do you like it in comparison with other alternatives? And nowadays with all the information from Google and from Amazon and others, we know a great deal about uh, people's willingness to pay for different things. So the first thing is, how much are you willing to pay? The second thing we can do is exploit a economic characteristic, which is that almost all prices are capitalized in asset values. So if I give you a, uh, if I put a tax on houses, so it's more expensive for you to have your house, the house price will fall. The tax is capitalized in the price. If I'm silly enough to design an agricultural policy that pays you a subsidy only by virtue of owning the land, the land price will go up. It will be capitalized in the land price. And so we can use this to exploit uh, opportunities to flesh out what's called the hedonic price, the capitalized value of um, the particular thing we're looking at. The third way of doing it is to look at related choices people make. So for example, one of the things that people do in health is they say, how much should we spend on trying to save a life um, from uh, say uh, heart failure versus putting in kidney machines versus something else? And to do that, to work out how much it's worth saving a statistical life for, given there aren't infinite monies available, we look at some of the choices people make where they trade off money against risk. So in this example, if you go and work on a North Sea oil rig um, and um, you get paid twice as much as you would on a land-based uh, activity, we can make a hazard a guess that you need to be paid twice your wage to take whatever the probability increase it is that you'll get killed or injured in the activity you're engaged in. So these are really different snapshots um, of how to do valuation. Willingness to pay, capitalised values, and looking at choices people make. Uh, and then, by the way, in that last box, we can also look at uh, choices people make in terms of the time that they use. So, give you an example. How much is a national park? 
worth spending money on? Well, a cost-benefit analysis person wants to know, well, how much do people value that national park? Well, one way of looking at that is say, how much time and effort, how much cost are they willing to, to incur in order to go and enjoy it? So if you have to drive three hours in a car uh, to get from London to Exmoor, and if the value of your time is X pounds per hour, it gives you a measure of the value to you of the cost you're willing to incur in order to benefit from that particular uh, asset. So that's another way of looking at choices people make. But I say these are three different snapshots and we can take them from each of the directions. And actually what's quite interesting is to ask a question like, uh, how different are the answers from each of these different approaches? So if you had an example and you wanted to know, let's say, let's take the example of um, the cutting in half of Twyford Down to create the M3 to get people from London faster to their boats and everything else down in Southampton. So we could ask, how much are you willing to pay for the view and the down? And just do a questionnaire. We could ask people a version of that, which is to say, how much are you willing to accept as compensation if we took it away from you? And by the way, they produce different answers, willingness to pay, willingness to accept. We could ask those questions. We could go around Twyford Down before this terrible event happened, and it was in fact terrible, as I'll explain in a moment, uh, from an economic point of view. We could go around and have a look at the prices of houses that have the Twyford Down view in them and have the natural environment of, uh, and the natural assets of Twyford Down outside their front door. How much more do people pay to have houses there versus having houses, say, down in the middle of Winchester. And we could argue that the difference in those prices of houses is the capitalised value of the Twyford Down uh, experience, if you like, versus being in the middle of town. Of course, you have to be a bit careful there. There are lots of other intervening factors. Some people might think the middle of Winchester is a very nice place to live for other reasons. But we could look for a capitalised effect to get some rough gauge of what's going on. Similarly, if we were looking at how bad is the noise from Heathrow Airport, we could look at how much cheaper houses are under the flight path than they are otherwise. So that's that way. Then we could turn our mind to looking at the uh, framework for people going to Twyford Down. So we could survey who goes there, where they come from, what they do, and how they um, uh, uh, try to um, spend their time enjoying those particular outcomes. So that's another possibility of what we could do and another way of looking at the options. They're all snapshots. Now, I mentioned one other component and then I'll come back to the Twyford Down example again. One other component is the discounting and saying, so people are gonna benefit from traveling through Twyford Down through this motorway now but they're going to benefit in the future. And similarly, people who were there on Twyford Down now with the down in place were benefiting, but so were future generations going to generate, just as many generations in the past had uh, benefited too from that down. So if you put those things together uh, and you look at those uh, uh, different time periods, should we treat the utility and benefits 
to the next generation the same as we treat the benefits to us now? And that's a pretty tricky question because it comes in two parts. One is, should we take account of utility, higher and lower, for different uh, people at different times? Or should we treat the utility people get as irrespective of the location and time when they lived? Or should we say that we care more about ourselves for the future generations and we care more about people who are closely related to us and less about people who are less related? The psychological facts are pretty straightforward. We don't care about people equally everywhere in the world and we don't care about people uh, more uh, distantly related to us and further in the future as much as we do today. So as a point of fact, we do discount utility, but whether it's morally right is of course another issue. And then there's the other point. If economic growth is say 2% per year, future generations are gonna be much better than we are, much better off than we are. They're gonna have more things. I've got an iPhone in my pocket. My parents' generation uh, used typewriters and were amongst the first generation to benefit from widespread telephones uh, being in people's houses. And the generation before me were the generation that in their lives, it was a great step forward to move, first of all, to have a television and then to have a color television. So what's available to me vis-a-vis -vis my parents and what's going to be available to my children and my grandchildren is obviously very different. And so since they're going to be better off in the future, if we want to equalize consumption over time, maybe I could, should consume more and discount their returns in the future. This makes a hell of a lot of difference. So it's what Nick Stern relied upon to get his result that it was in our economic interest to deal with climate change now. And he made some very questionable assumptions about how discounting's done. But I think it's fairly obvious that if you treat people equally for all time periods in the future to now, we'll do very different things than what we currently do and what, if I might suggest it, human nature leads us to do. So discounting, we add once we've worked out the valuations and we work those out by these various snapshots of willingness to pay, willingness to accept, hedonic pricing, travel costs, and actual uh, behavioral decisions that people reveal uh, uh, through their uh, choices that they make. Back to Twyford Dow. I could ask the question, could you tell me, dear economist, exactly what Twyford Down's worth? Is it worth £14,562,472.52 uh, or is it worth a bit more, a bit less than that? It's a pretty silly question. But here's the question that should have been asked about Twyford Down. At the time, it would have cost about £90 million to put a tunnel underneath Twyford Down so the motorway could have continued down to Southampton without destroying the dam. The relevant question for cost-benefit analysis in Twyford Down was, is the dam possibly conceivably worth less than 90 million? To which the answer is almost certainly not. And so therefore, any elementary cost-benefit analysis which just focused on the cost of the tunnel would have left Twyford Down intact that was the economically right thing to do. And now people in Winchester 
future generations will be able to walk up on the hill and go across Twyford Down and enjoy that for generations to come. And all the butterflies and the insects and the birds and the mammals and everything that went with that extraordinarily uh, wonderful chalk downland that was destroyed for those very purposes. So that's about the techniques. That's about the discounting. And then we need to bring these things together to think about applications. I've given uh, some examples, but now applications in respect of natural capital. And if you recall from the first lecture, natural capital is about assets. And the framework for thinking about natural capital starts with the idea that we split natural capital into renewables and non-renewables. It's the renewables that matter, and it starts with the science of the thresholds below which renewables become non-renewables and go on the path to extinction. So the task in natural capital to maintain our aggregate at least intact to make sure the next generation has assets at least as good as ours is about making sure that renewable natural capital stays above the thresholds. In fact, more than that, it stays above the safe limits because we can't be exactly certain where the thresholds are. Now, the immediate point to notice, which many people who pursue cost-benefit analysis as the way of looking at these problems fail to notice, is that the thresholds and the safe limits have got nothing to do with cost-benefit analysis at all. Where cost-benefit analysis comes in is once you are beyond those safe limits and where we're making choices about how to spend money to enhance our natural capital, given our overall objective is to leave natural capital in a better state for future generations than we inherited it. So should we spend uh, money on adding new national parks, on improving habitats, ecosystems, of pursuing particular projects, which ones should we choose? And because we're above the thresholds of the renewable characteristic, we're not at risk of doing any damage to the possibility that asset might be available in the future to future generations. But what we are doing is saying, but wouldn't we do a lot better if we had a lot more of this sort of natural capital, as opposed to maybe we wouldn't be doing that much better if we had a bit of something else. So this is where cost-benefit analysis comes in. It helps us to sort out how to spend the money, but spend the money only above the thresholds and the safe limits. Now, most cost-benefit analysis uh, uh, people reject that because they reject the idea that there are any special assets at all. In a purely utilitarian utility world, all that matters is utility. And since all that matters is utility, uh, is utility in a kind of utilitarian framework, nothing is sacred. So we're focused on simply what is the greatest happiness, the greatest number. And here is where utilitarianism and the environment come head to head. They clash and where natural capital uses cost benefit analysis in a limited domain, whereas the utilitarian and the mainstream economist uses cost benefit analysis for everything. And this shows up very clearly in what the government does. The green book, so-called, is how to do project assessment in government. It's the Treasury's Bible. Unfortunately, it's been revised to add a bit more 
um, environment into the project appraisal across all the things, you know, from HS2 to, to schools to hospitals uh, to spending on a whole variety of, of areas. So we, we've added some environmental things into it. But in the end, all that matters is what is the net present value of the project? And then we should just do the projects with the highest net present value. Now, it's pretty clear to environmentalists that there are quite a lot of stuff out there which wouldn't come out with a particularly high net present value on a cost-benefit basis, might be quite close to naught, or even less preserving a site that could otherwise be used for building houses or whatever. But nevertheless, from a natural capital point of view, we should preserve it. And um, in the framework of these lectures, it'll be clear that uh, the view I've been developing is that natural capital is distinct from utility, it's about capacity and capabilities and choices and ecosystems and is not about marginal utility based uh, uh, marginal changes to all the assets. But it is about human benefits when we're well within the safe limits. But let's get there first and then we can worry about the techniques of cost benefit analysis secondly. And that leads us naturally to think about how to do that in terms of accounting and about the state of those assets which is a question which does not arise in a cost benefit framework. Thank you very much.